0: As many of you know, I began preaching in Genesis 1-1 in our evening services when this church was first established in 2017. And over the course of the last four years in our evening services, we made it all the way through the entire book of Genesis, and we made it up to Exodus 20, and I have preached through the Ten Commandments. And we are at a juncture in Scripture where the Israelites have come into Sinai, or pardon me, have come to Sinai and enter into, formally into, what the Scripture calls the Old Covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. At this juncture, instead of continuing in Exodus 21 and Exodus 22 and so forth, and then consecutively through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I decided to take a break from studying this section of Scripture consecutively and study this section of Scripture systematically instead to try to help us wrap our minds around what is happening in the Old Covenant. So we're still studying the Bible, of course, and I'm still expositing texts as we go, but we're working through the Old Covenant conceptually, rather than consecutively. And we're resuming that series on the Old Covenant tonight. And it's actually been several months now since our last sermon in this series, due both to my trip to Canada as well as COVID-19 restrictions that have impacted our evening service. So let me give you a brief review of where we've been so far the concepts that we have covered so far. First, we began by examining the nature of the Old Covenant. And we saw that it is a teaching covenant as opposed to being a self covenant. It teaches us about the covenant of grace, though it itself is not the covenant of grace. This is evidenced by the fact that you could be legitimately in it, Legitimately in the old covenant and yet still be damned, as for example, Dathan and Korah who rebelled against Moses, or the wicked kings of Israel and Judah, much later in redemptive history. It was a conditional covenant based on an if then structure, promising blessedness and flourishing upon obedience. And on the other hand, threatening curses and misery for disobedience. So, there were Old Covenant Israelites who were legitimately in the Old Covenant. Legitimately in it. And yet, they were still in the broken Covenant of Works with Adam. And therefore, damned. And there were... Old Covenant Israelites who were legitimately in the Old Covenant and yet were also in the Covenant of Grace with Christ and therefore saved. So being in the Old Covenant didn't necessarily mean you're going to be damned, but neither did being in the Old Covenant necessarily mean you're going to be saved. So therefore, it's not a salvific covenant. As John Owen said then, and I'm paraphrasing, bringing it into modern language from his statement a few hundred years ago, though all men were either damned or saved during the time period of the Old Covenant, no one was damned or saved by virtue of his relation to the Old Covenant. Anyone who is damned was damned already. On the basis of his covenantal status in Adam. And anyone who was saved... Was saved on the basis of his covenantal status... In Christ. In the covenant of grace. So I'm not arguing this point tonight. I'm just reviewing it. If you're interested in a fuller argument for this point... You can go back and listen to the first three or four sermons... From this Old Covenant series... Which are posted up on our website. From there... We moved on, and we examined what theologians call the tripartite division of the law. That's a mouthful, but historically, Reformed theologians have recognized that there are laws contained in the Old Covenant which may never change, because they are connected to God's nature. So in all places, and at all times, they are applicable to all people groups both inside and outside of the Old Covenant. These are what we call moral laws, and they are summarized in the Ten Commandments. But there are also laws containing the Old Covenant which may be changed, and or they may vary in their applicability, because they are not connected to God's nature per se, but they are... They stem from God's authority to command at one time this, and at another time that, as He pleases. Or for one people group this, and for another people group that, as He pleases. So there are laws which are applicable to those inside the Old Covenant, which are not applicable to those outside the Old Covenant. And those are called positive laws. And that category of positive laws, laws which are applicable to those inside the Old Covenant but not applicable to those outside the Old Covenant, may be broken down further into two subcategories civil and ceremonial. There are laws which governed only the ancient nation state of Israel, which are not applicable to nation states other than the ancient nation state of Israel. These are the Old Covenant civil laws. When God constituted them a nation, He gave them rules for how their nation was to function. And those rules are not necessarily applicable, say, barbarians in the 21st century. We spent a few weeks examining a sampling of these, and we're going to circle back around, actually, at some point, back to some more civil stuff, and consider the governance of ancient, the ancient nation-state of Israel, and the distinctiveness of their governance and contrast that and compare that with the way that nation states are governed now, etc, etc. We're going to explore some of that in greater detail down the road. But for the next number of weeks, we're going to be moving on from talking about those civil laws to talking about the Old Covenant ceremonial laws, which were which were binding upon ancient Israelites, but were not binding and are not binding upon those outside of the Old Covenant. And tonight I want to give you the paradigm for understanding these Old Covenant ceremonial laws. That's the goal of this message tonight. We're not going to examine any of the ceremonial laws in great detail but I'm going to give you a zoomed-out view of the ceremonial laws so that as we focus in on some specific ones in the coming weeks, you can see and understand their role and function, both in ancient Israel and throughout the rest of Scripture and throughout the rest of redemptive history, which we are, by the way, still living in. It's probably not going to be rocket science for a lot of you, but it's good to uh, touch this and get this in place before we get right into the ceremonial laws in future weeks and start looking at some of them in greater detail. So let's examine Hebrews 9.24 tonight and examine the paradigm that it provides for us with respect to the ceremonial laws. Let me read it again one more time. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. First, we should see that Hebrews 9.24 asserts that the tabernacle and later the temple, by implication, are copies of the true things. Now, the first implication of this statement is that the tabernacle and, and by extension later the temple are not the true things. The copies of the true things are not the true things themselves so if the tabernacle is called a copy of the true thing it itself is not the true thing by extension as we think this through if the tabernacle itself is not a true thing but is a copy of a true thing then it stands to reason that the the lambs offered in those places And the priests who offered them up are not the true things either. That the tabernacle stands here as a part which represents the whole. The writer to the Hebrews calls the holy place made with hands copies of the true things. But in that statement is the implication that everything associated with that is also copies of the true things. It doesn't make sense that that it was the true priests and the true lambs, but they were going into a place that wasn't the true place. You see what I mean? It makes sense, if we're going to be consistent with the line of reasoning here, that the place was a copy of the true place. And so the lamb was a copy of the true lamb, and the priest was a copy of the true priest, etc., etc. So, the tabernacle, the lamb, the priest, these are not the true things. By extension, the laws pertaining to these things were not the true things either. You didn't actually get atonement by keeping the ceremonial laws. Now, in case that sounds kind of scandalous let me turn you to just a couple of past, or a couple of verses one wish we read uh, in Hebrews chapter 9 oh I lost my place here verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Another one that's in the very same section, but it's in the next chapter, so we didn't actually read it as we were going through earlier, is chapter 10 and verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So, what we see is that you didn't actually get atonement by keeping the ceremonial laws. It wasn't actually God's intention to actually atone for sins by means of the blood of bulls and goats. It wasn't God's intention and God's plan that the offerings offered up by the sons of Levi in the tabernacle in the wilderness and later in the temple would be offerings that would actually cleanse the worshippers. It was not God's plan that it was by the mediation of the sons of Levi that we would approach God and that we would be atoned for. Hebrews 10.4, as I just read, says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So God set up a system which not only did not but could not have actually accomplished atonement for sins. The tabernacle was not the true holy place. The sons of Levi were not the true priests. The lambs were not the true lambs, and therefore the whole system was inefficacious, which is a fancy way of saying it didn't work. But this wasn't because God's plan failed this was god's plan the same god who gave us a system which related to the blood of bulls and goats and revolved around the blood of bulls and goats is the same god who inspired the words it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin so the question naturally arises why would god give us a system that was ineffective to actually take away sins? And the answer is that God gave us a system that was ineffective at actually taking away sins in order to teach us about the way that He would, in due time, actually take away sins. God gave us copies of the true things... So that we would be able to recognize and understand the true things themselves when we were presented with them. Like a police force distributes to its officers a likeness of a wanted criminal, which isn't actually the criminal himself. Nobody says, I have got the culprit, and pulls a little piece of paper out and says, here you go, I brought him in. We know that this likeness, this copy, is not the criminal, but it is distributed and given so that the police officers can recognize him when they see him. Like a student who writes practice tests, which are likenesses of the true test, in order to prepare himself for the true test. In a similar way as we, we recognize in other areas and in other spheres and Uh, venues, formats, copies, likenesses are helpful to us in some way. In a way similar to this, God gave us the Old Covenant ceremonial laws. Though they were just likenesses, just copies of the true things, God gave us these things in order to help us understand the true things themselves. The ceremonial laws give us categories to thinking oh I need atonement I need a substitute I need a mediator or a representative before God I need to meet God in the place that God has determined I need to meet God on the terms that God himself has set Greg Bronson correctly notes that Part of the Old Covenant teaches us about what God requires. And part of the Old Covenant teaches us what needs to happen when we don't do what God requires. He calls the ceremonial laws restorative laws. Because they pertain to what needs to happen when we don't do what God has required in the first place. And so that's a pretty good term. The ceremonial laws teach us about restoration in our relationship with God after sin. And it gives us categories for how that restoration works. Perhaps an even better term for the ceremonial laws would be restorative teaching. Since the ceremonies don't actually restore, but rather teach about how true restoration works. But the term is not important. The concept itself is what matters. And the concept is this the ceremonial laws are not the true things, but are copies of the true things. What are the true things then? Looking back at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24, we see that Hebrews 9 24 asserts that the ministry of Jesus pertains to the true things. It says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but by implication into the true things. Right? That's the contrast that's implied here. That is into heaven itself. And did Jesus bring the blood of bulls and goats? No, He did Because it wasn't just that The blood of bulls and goats were the true things, but it was just the tabernacle that was a copy. Remember, everything associated with the tabernacle, the whole system was copies. And so Jesus didn't go into the true holy place with the copies then, the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus, verse 25 says, went into heaven itself and it was not with the blood of bulls and goats, but it was to offer Himself. It was to offer up His own blood. Now, this term offering up, who is it that offers up sacrifices in the holy place? It's priests. So Jesus was doing priestly work. But is He from the tribe of Levi, as the Old Covenant priests were? No. No. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. So, Jesus is not a copy of the true priest. His blood is not a copy of the true blood. He did not do His work in a copy of the place where the true work needs to be done. Jesus is the true priest. Jesus is the true Lamb. Jesus did his work where the true work needs to be done Jesus and his ministry are the true things of which everything else was copies at which and to which the copies were intended to point us i learned from the old covenant i need a priest i learn from the new testament scriptures Jesus is my priest, who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. I learn from the Old Covenant, I need a lamb. I learn from the New Testament Scriptures that Jesus is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the true priest, and Jesus is the true lamb. It's really quite simple. This whole book is about Jesus. And it's always been about Jesus. But the Old Covenant copies help us to understand Jesus' word better than we would be able to without them. So the ceremonial laws are not about something else. They're about Jesus. They're copies of the true things. And the true things pertain to Jesus and His work. So the ceremonial law serves as an introduction to Christ Himself and to His work. Remember, part of the Old Covenant law teaches us what ought to be done. And part of the Old Covenant law, which is the ceremonial laws, teach us what needs to be done when we haven't done what we ought to have done. Once our sin is assumed, in other words, once, we've, once we see ourselves as sinners for having broken God's moral law, for having disobeyed His precepts, we find ourselves in need of ceremonial law. How can I be made right with God? And the Old Covenant ceremonial laws explain to us how we can be made right with God. It's through the offering up of a sacrifice by a priest in the place that God has appointed, in the manner that God has appointed, on the terms that God has appointed. But the old covenant ceremonial laws simply give us the categories, simply give us the concepts, simply give us the principles. Jesus later comes and does the work to which and at which all of the ceremonial laws pointed and described and it is through Jesus and the true things which are related to him and his word and his ministry that our sin can actually be atoned for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin but listen to this it is impossible for the blood of Jesus not to take away sin It is impossible for the ministry of the sons of Levi to take away sin, but it is impossible for the ministry of our great high priest described in the book of Hebrews not to take away sin. It is impossible to go into the old covenant holy place and meet with God and have your sins erased, but it is impossible to go to Calvary at that place where Jesus offered up Himself and not have your sins erased. The copies of the true things help us understand the true things themselves. So as we study through the ceremonial laws and more specificity in future weeks, what we need to understand is that these are not something that is distinct from the ministry of Jesus. And like, why are we studying these old ancient rituals? What do they have to do with us? We live in Barbados, or we live in the U.S., or we live wherever else in the 21st century. What do these old ancient Jewish rituals have to do with us? We shouldn't approach it as if there's something other than what's relevant to us now. As we study through the ceremonial laws in greater specificity in future weeks, We need to be saying, okay, well, we know these are copies of the true things. So what can we learn about the true things by studying the copies? And so it actually becomes quite relevant to us to study through the Old Covenant ceremonial laws. Because as we do, we're going to catch detail and specificity and texture of Christ's work that we might otherwise miss if we didn't have these Old Covenant ceremonial laws to help fill out the picture and specify and nuance and bring out all the richness of what Jesus has actually done and has actually accomplished for us. I don't know if you caught it, but Hebrews 9 speaks about a chapter in the Bible that you ought to be familiar with which describes the day of atonement in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 we read this these preparations having thus been made the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties but into the second only the high priest goes And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, do you know what chapter speaks about that ceremony in which the high priest goes in once a year to make atonement for himself and for the sins of the people? It's Leviticus chapter 16. And it describes the Day of Atonement. I was originally hoping to look briefly at Leviticus chapter 16 this evening after all of this to demonstrate in a specific case how our understanding of Christ's work is enriched by looking at the ceremonial law. But for the sake of giving you adequate time, I'll save the bulk of that for next Sunday night, God willing. But suffice it to say for tonight's purposes that the Day of Atonement described in Leviticus chapter 16 is a copy of the true thing. And you see that from the reference to it in Hebrews 9. It says those priests did this but then Jesus came and did this. And Jesus didn't go do it in a copy kind of way. Jesus did the genuine thing. Jesus did the true thing. So what would the Day of Atonement, described in Leviticus 16, be a copy of? And this is not rocket science. What is the true thing that the Day of Atonement points to? It's the day that Jesus was crucified at Calvary. We shouldn't then read our Bibles and say, the Day of Atonement was only for Old Covenant Israelites. And what did the Day of Atonement, what does the Day of Atonement have to do with us? No, we shouldn't say that. The Day of Atonement is for sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation who recognize that they need a priest and a lamb. But they don't go get the blood of bulls and goats and find a descendant of Levi in order to have their sins atoned for. That would be looking to the copies. Instead, these sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation who realize that they need a priest and need a lamb should look to Jesus and His ministry, which are the true things to which and at which the copies pointed. So as we think about a Day of Atonement, as we think about a Day of Atonement, if I say the word or the phrase, Day of Atonement, What you should think about first and foremost in terms of a chapter in the Bible is not actually Leviticus 16, though that's a very crucial Old Testament text. When I say the phrase, Day of Atonement, what you should jump to in your mind first, or where you should jump in your mind first, is to the closing chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because Leviticus 16 is a copy of the true things. It's those chapters which tell us how Christ was led to Calvary and nailed to the tree. Which are the true things. To which and at which the day of atonement in Leviticus 16 pointed. Jesus, at the end of the gospel accounts, doesn't do something unrelated to what the ceremonial law taught. Rather, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law the way a real person fulfills a picture of himself.